Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Charlie Richardson was still in his early 20s by the mid-1950s, though his hardened face suggested his scant years had been full ones. So did the respect he commanded at London's hottest nightclub, the Astor. As beautiful girls and hardened criminals shimmied in and out of the door, Charlie laughed from the sidelines, watching them watch him. And when one of his guys whispered the latest about Jack Duval in his ear, he proved he warranted London's fear. If Duval kept running from his debts to the torture gang, one of his associates would pay the price. Charlie gave the order, bring in Lucian Harris. Lucian didn't know where Jack Duval had gone with Charlie's money. But when the torture gang came calling, he wished he did. He'd have sold out brother, mother, or child to avoid what happened next. First, they put the generator's electrodes on his toes, shocking him as Charlie screamed again and again, tell me where he is. When all he could wail in reply was, I don't know, they dunked him in a tub of ice-cold water and reattached the electrodes, this time to his genitals. Charlie asked for Duval's location one last time. Then he shook his head and said, what a shame, as he flipped the generator's switch. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on Charlie Richardson, notorious leader of the South London Torture Gang. This week, we'll be exploring his rise from a working-class cog to infamous businessman. Next week, we'll cover the violent murder that led to his downfall. Charlie didn't like being challenged, conned, or cheated. So he came up with a game to set his gang apart from all the other London toughs and keep his enemies wary. The Torture Court. Eddie Richardson, Charlie's brother, played the role of prosecutor. Charlie was always the judge. Anyone who crossed him could become a defendant. For example, James Taggart. Taggart was a businessman who had often dealt with Charlie Richardson and the rest of the torture gang. But now he would know them in a different light. 
Taggart owed Charlie and his men 1,200 pounds, and the debt was far overdue. The torture gang gathered in a warehouse, smoking cigarettes, shouting, and laughing while holding their mock trial to decide Taggart's fate. Taggart, meanwhile, sat naked and bound on the floor in the middle of the warehouse, awaiting whatever vicious fate the court decided was just. Charlie and the usual associates made up the court. There was Frankie Fraser, his right-hand man, and of course, Eddie, amongst a few trusted others. They all shared the same opinion. Anyone who questioned Charlie's authority or doubted any of his business techniques would find a similar fate to Taggart's. Eddie finished his closing statement. And Charlie, donning a judge's robe, dropped his fist onto the table like a gavel. The verdict was, as usual, guilty. Now it was time for punishment. First, Charlie instructed, a beating. Some of the men kicked Taggart, some used their fists. Frazier took up a long wooden pole, similar to the end of a broomstick. Charlie looked on, smiling slightly, as Frazier beat Taggart so hard, the pole split. Only then did the men take a break, leaving their victim bloody and writhing on the floor. That's when Alfred Berman, another partner of Charlie's, arrived at the scene with victuals for the festivities. Of course, torturers get hungry and thirsty like anyone else. Berman supplied all the men with sandwiches and beer. Taggart waited as they ate. Then, it all started up again. As the beatings came to a close, Taggart was untied. Charlie made him clean his own blood up from the walls and floor, using the underwear that had been stripped from him prior to the trial. How dare he leave their courtroom so bloody? Taggart was then taken outside, doused with buckets of cold water, and tossed a clean shirt by Charlie himself. He put it on, collected himself as best he could, and drove furiously home. The phrase, taking a shirt from Charlie, would come to imply just what had happened. First, a merciless beating, then a depraved cleanup, followed by a clean shirt thrown in the direction of the victim, who scurried away as fast as he could. Each victim was too terrified to tell authorities what had happened, worried an even crueler fate might befall him in the future. But Taggart's trial was just a typical one. Sometimes, they were far worse. At the infamous 1967 torture trials, some victims had tales of Charlie tying them to a target and throwing knives at them as a deranged target practice. Others were stripped down and hooked up by their genitals and toes to an electric generator, shocked until their screams turned their voices hoarse. When Charlie thought the shocks weren't strong enough, he would have liquid poured onto whatever body part the electrodes were hooked up to and watch as the agony continued. Charlie, in court and in interviews, often maintained that he had no part in such atrocities and that the media had merely created a frenzy surrounding his business. They didn't care about the truth. All they wanted was to sell papers and create a villain that would haunt Londoners' nightmares. The witnesses' detailed, analogous stories spoke for themselves. However, 
They painted a picture of a man who'd been on the path to violent crime for a long time. Charlie was born in 1934 in Camberwell, South London, into a working-class family. His mother worked in a tea room, and his father was a seaman, rarely present for fathering. Charlie spent most of his time with his younger brother, Eddie, who became a confidant, a cohort, and a best friend. When Charlie's father did grace the family with uncommon trips home, he would often encourage his boys to question authority and to take from the world because it certainly didn't give to people like them. Charlie acted on these lessons early, paying little attention at school. Instead, he spent his time in the musty schoolhouse making pals with a group of rascals who were just as bored with the lesson plans as he was. These boys would form Charlie's first gang. Together, they'd scavenge the streets and taunt outsiders. They'd also wrestle and box each other, and sometimes less fortunate schoolmates. The chaos of the South London streets delighted Charlie, and the excitement peaked in him a morbid curiosity of just how far you could push someone before they cracked. It was a question he would, unfortunately, have to face firsthand at a very young age. Beginning in September 1940, when Charlie was six years old, World War II reached London in the form of the Blitz. Bombs constantly dropped over the city, and Charlie's mother feared for her children's safety. So she sent the boys to a dormitory in the Dorset countryside. Little did she know, they'd be beaten and abused by the couple that was supposed to keep them safe from the dangers of the war. The couple who ran the dormitory took in children for a bit of extra cash, then treated them worse than the animals on the countryside farm. Boys were crammed into the same room, barely fed, and banished to bed as early as could be managed. Charlie's mother often sent her sons packages of treats, but the packages never made it to them. After all, good rations during the war were hard to come by. The old man beat the boys with a belt. Or, as discipline, he'd hold their heads underwater until they shook and gasped for air, only to beat them again. A few months passed before Charlie's mother visited. Charlie told her everything, and seeing the state of her boys, she believed him. She immediately took the children back to London. But the early torture that Charlie and Eddie endured together was seared into their memories. Charlie's childhood was by no means easy, and many of his later cohorts asserted that these experiences influenced why and how Charlie later craved so much control as torture king. But his childhood introduced him to other elements of the criminal underworld too, like how to make a quick buck. Back in London, a seven-year-old Charlie began rummaging through blitz-bombed buildings. The ruins were filled with various loot, and Charlie began to see how he could create his own little black market with the goods found inside. He stole and resold chocolate, sugar, and cigarettes, often overcharging his customers for the rarities he had found. And he likely didn't think twice about the morality of his actions. Charlie matured during a South London era where gentlemen gangsters had become heroes for the working class. 
They were praised for their objection to authority. Their courage empowered the lower class, many of whom felt like forgotten collateral wreckage of World War II. For Charlie, the riches and the respect that could be acquired from some simple crime seemed like a win-win situation. In fact, there was no reason to limit his pillaging to chocolates and cigarettes. By 1942, an eight-year-old Charlie started collecting various scrap metals from ovens, scrap cars, and bits of tin roof, especially valuable during the wartime pinch of shortages. His age, however, worked against him in the business. What scrapyard would trust a child with matters of business? They thought he was easy prey for underpayment. But Charlie, even at eight years old, knew the worth of his scraps. So he found a workaround. He enlisted the help of Fagans, adult men who thieved through the streets and could help him with his sales. But these men came with their own problems. Often, they took more than their share of the profit. Charlie knew if he could cut out the middleman, he could make more. And so, he decided to take a different approach to his age problem. He'd learn to bookkeep. Armed with a book of neat and tidy numbers, he was much harder to cheat. And he had more recourse for cheating himself. Slowly, Charlie began to realize he could stretch the truth with some of those numbers, and the adults he sold to would be none the wiser. They had no reason to challenge a young boy and his accounting books, and often failed to look closely enough to even notice. By the time Charlie was 14, his tiny business was booming, and he had surpassed the title of petty thief. He and his primary helper, his brother, were raking in more cash than many grown men. And they were still children. This was just the beginning of their criminal empire. Coming up, Charlie grows up and grows his criminal ambitions. Now, back to the story. In the years following World War II, Charlie Richardson stepped into the roles of teenager and criminal simultaneously, escalating his South London operation from looting to real theft. He and his chief partner, his brother Eddie, perfected an ingenious technique for robbing trucks. First, by learning to manipulate the pressure pads that caused the traffic lights to change. If Charlie saw a truck carrying something he wanted, he signaled for his brother to jump up and down on the pressure pad. The lights were changed to red, and Charlie, fearless, would jump into the back of the truck. There, he'd gather his loot and signal for his brother to release the flow of traffic again, jumping off at the next stop or even hitching a free ride home. At this point, Charlie was fully committed to his life in the streets. After all, what was there for him, a businessman, at school? Aside from girls. But girls were a powerful motivator. In 1947, at age 13, Charlie started stealing cars. His money afforded him nice clothes, but even well-dressed Charlie felt self-conscious and shy in front of the opposite sex. A car made him feel more confident. After all, it was a lot easier to impress the girls with a night on the town if you had a car to pick them up in. On one such night, after dropping off one of his dates, 
Charlie and one of his friends took the car for a late-night race through the streets. A cop pulled up beside Charlie, and Charlie, confident that he could pull off any escape, took off as fast as he could, with the cop close behind. He raced around corners, cutting off any drivers in his path. Then, a too-eager Charlie found himself and his nicked car rammed into a wall. But it was too late to give in now. Charlie and his friend took off running, the cop chasing them close behind, gaining on them by the second. The cop tackled Charlie to the ground, and the race was over. The chase would land 15-year-old Charlie in Lambeth Juvenile Court. He attempted to get off by explaining to the judge that he didn't even know how to drive a car. But the judge was no fool, and Charlie was found guilty. He was sentenced to three years in a correctional facility for boys. Charlie made friends quickly in the correctional facility. He was always well-liked. But still, he missed freedom and the thrill of the streets. He wanted nothing more than to get back to the businessman side of his life. So after a few months, he made that happen. He climbed out his window on a rope made of sheets, escaping the correctional facility. The plan was for Charlie to hide out with some friends until his father's next trip out to sea, right after the new year. He would tag along and live with his father on ships and ports until it felt safe to come home. But the plan wouldn't quite work. It was five in the morning on Christmas Eve when Charlie awoke to a loud bang on the door. Before he could fully wake up, he heard his father yelling with another man, then found himself being dragged down the stairs and shoved into a police car. Charlie was escorted to Wormwood Scrubs, a men's prison in West London, or as Charlie would call it, one of the great British universities of crime. At Wormwood Scrubs, the other prisoners quickly took Charlie under their wing, teaching him the differences between the sloppy desperation of a petty thief and the organized way of the fraudulent businessman. When Charlie was released in 1950, he would scoff that the system that tried so hard to set him straight was the same system that taught him everything he needed to know about the world of crime. Charlie returned to London ready to hone his craft. He had already begun selling his scrap metals directly to the yards, but he knew he could become an even better dealer if he could expand his knowledge. He threw himself into the study of metals, something few of his competitors bothered with. The investment paid off. He would often buy from one local seller and resell the metal at a much higher value to another yard just miles away. Money was coming in quick. But not quite quick enough for Charlie's ever-expanding ambitions. He was determined to acquire his own scrap metal yard. So he focused all his considerable energies on the task. While his friends were out with girls or drinking at the pub, Charlie studied. He saved every dime from every transaction until he had enough to buy an old furniture van. Then he used the van to launch a new scheme. Charlie's Uncle Jim was making a living buying used sacks from farmers. He had a cart and a horse, and his trips and sales took him far too much time to make a respectable profit. Charlie suggested they go into business together, 
After all, he had a van now, and the trips would be much easier with a little bit more speed on their side. At the farms, Charlie realized that the farmers rarely knew how many sacks they had, and that his simple uncle was always honest about how many sacks he was taking. But Charlie could easily tell the difference between a farmer who had no knowledge of his bounty and the farmer who counted everything like an old miser. So here and there, Charlie and his uncle miscounted, taking a little extra where they saw fit and fudging their accounts so no one knew any better. But Charlie was always on the lookout for his next scheme. And when, on one of his trips with Jim, Charlie noticed the deserted aircraft in an empty airfield, he saw a perfect opportunity. The only thing that stood between him and his newfound treasure was a small lock on the door of the hangar. If his uncle would help, they could take apart the carrier and sell the parts. But Jim was defeated far before the process began. Who knew what deserted things the war ministry kept a keen eye on? This was different from pilfering a used sack or two. It was too dangerous. Charlie asserted his uncle had little ambition. But it didn't matter. He would find a way to get those parts, those sirens of riches and opportunity. His first order of business was to find out who owned the aircraft hangar. So Charlie posed as an aircraft enthusiast and called everyone he could get a hold of at the war ministry. He found the hangar and its aircraft had been sold to a London company that dealt with the selling of secondhand parts. Perfect. He would pose as an employee of a big company, a company that could easily purchase the metal from the company that currently owned it. And his uncle Jim, reluctantly or not, would pose as the company's head. Charlie set up a meeting to inspect the parts and he and Uncle Jim met with Mr. Dunn of the London Company. Dunn was well informed about what parts could be used but knew nothing of their worth. The sale was £5,000, an amount Mr. Dunn was more than happy to part with the junk for. Charlie had forged a cheque, assuming it would buy him just enough time to get the metal out of the hangar and the deal was made. He hired a few truck drivers and rented a warehouse to store the parts. And then, in one night, he transported everything out of the field. Once the parts were safely in their new location, Charlie called Mr. Dunn and broke the news. Unfortunately, Charlie's mock company had gone bankrupt. He calmed a furious Mr. Dunn by assuring him the company's head, Mr. Richardson, would soon return home from vacation and settle the debts. Mr. Dunn was livid. He was not in fact his company's head, just an employee who saw an opportunity to make a deal. What would he do now? Charlie pushed the lie further. If Mr. Dunn wanted, they could sell the parts together. His knowledge of the parts combined with Charlie's familiarity with metals would earn them the debt back faster. And Mr. Dunn couldn't go to the police. If he did, surely he'd be fired. It was an atypical business deal and entirely illegal. But a desperate Mr. Dunn agreed. And within three weeks, Charlie had sold the parts, settled the debt, and made himself a 4,500-pound profit. Still, Mr. Dunn felt wronged. 
and now that he had secured the money back for his company, he contacted authorities. Two men showed up at Charlie's door, the fraud squad. They introduced themselves as Bert and Norman and requested that Charlie have all the paperwork for the deal collected by the following morning when they would return with a search warrant. Charlie was appalled. He remained adamant that he had done nothing wrong. Mr. Dunn got the money he was owed and Charlie sold parts that were rotting away in an empty field to those who needed the metals. But clearly, these fraud cops didn't see it that way. Charlie frantically called his uncle Jim, asking for advice. The response was far from reassuring. Jim said flatly that Charlie was out of luck. The fraud squad were a different type of copper, right evil bastards. And that if Charlie tried to sell him out, he would deny everything. Charlie was on his own. Coming up, Charlie risks everything to keep his cons going. And now, back to the story. It was 1951, and 17-year-old Charlie Richardson was desperately trying to avoid another stint in jail. But this time, he would need to outsmart fraud investigators, a new challenge. When fraud squad investigators Bert and Norman dropped by his house for a second visit, Charlie had no idea what to expect, but he knew it couldn't be good. The men put their briefcases down as they accepted tea offered by Charlie's frightened mother. Then they took out their paperwork, an inventory of the aircraft hangar parts, and asked Charlie for his. Charlie had written down receipts for a few transactions, but nowhere near enough to prove that the deals were legal, because, of course, they weren't. Bert and Norman looked through Charlie's receipts and then eyed Charlie cagily. This didn't look good. Bert and Norman stood up and walked around the living room, mulling over the facts of the fraud in their heads. But as the men walked through the flat, they found Charlie's mother's display cabinet, an old curio with various valued trinkets. Bert commented on the beautiful porcelain figures. Then Norman piped in, complimenting Charlie's father's medals and the boy's silver champion wrestling cups. Finally, Bert said pointedly, My wife collects these porcelain figures. They cost me a bloody fortune. Yes, this one is very nice. Charlie might have been young, but he wasn't stupid. He knew what they wanted, or thought he did. It was a risky play, but he had no other choice. He spoke, breaking the silence. Bert, I would like to contribute to your wife's collection. He took a 150-pound bundle out of his pocket and held it out. He could taste the tension in the air. Would they take the bait? How would he react? Bert shook Charlie's hand and looked to his partner. After what seemed like hours, Bert lauded Charlie for his kindness. The gift was a thoughtful gesture, and on second thought, it seemed there was nothing more to investigate. Norman, after accepting his own handful of cash, echoed that indeed. They didn't have enough evidence to charge Charlie at all. They wished the boy and his mother a good day, grabbed their coats, and left. Charlie was just 17. He had successfully committed fraud 
paid off the police and had gotten away scot-free. And he finally had enough money to rent his own scrap metal yard. The yard was the perfect base to make deals on the daily, swindling businessmen and keeping a close connection with Bert and Norman, who would surely help him out of any fraudulent trouble in the future, as long as he kept them financially comfortable. The successes only continued. At 19, Charlie had enough money to buy his rented yard. He hired his brother full-time and his mother to run the books. The other businessmen in the area were appalled. They hated his steady rise to success. But Charlie couldn't have cared less. He was thriving. That is, until he hit another hurdle. In 1953, he was drafted into the army. His business ventures would have to be put on hold. Life in the army was much like school for him. Boring, drab, and a waste of his real talent. He had to find a way out. So he spent his days in the army wreaking havoc. He tried to kiss men. He started fights in the barracks. He mocked the corporal and became violent, throwing benches with no regard for authority. Charlie became insufferable. And the plan worked. After a particularly violent fight with a medical officer, the army had had enough of Charlie. He was court-martialed for six months and placed in Shepton Mallet Prison with loads of other men who had also proven to be too much trouble for the army to handle. It was the perfect place for Charlie. Here, he would meet future business partners, villainous rivals like the Cray brothers, and other gang leaders who had become close and loyal associates. He was making connections. And Charlie understood that if he wanted to run his businesses without being challenged, he needed to befriend the right people. That was an imperative 20-year-old Charlie was still contemplating when he returned home in 1954. His mother and brother Eddie had kept the business afloat while he was gone, and money was still coming in strong. But Charlie's ambitions had only intensified in prison, and he was ready to expand the operation. What he needed was a reliable team of hard men, men who would do whatever was necessary to get the business paid. Frankie Frazier, one of London's most frightening monsters, was Charlie's first choice. Frankie was a legend, an enforcer known to everyone in London. With Frankie on his side, no one would question any of Charlie's fraudulent businesses. If they did, they'd be cut to pieces. But Charlie needed to find a way to buy Frankie over, respectably and properly. He came up with the perfect idea. While Frankie was in jail, a close relative of his was badly beaten up by members of another London gang. Charlie and Eddie found out who the gang member was and together took it upon themselves to beat the living hell out of him. News got back to Frankie of the Richardsons' kind gesture, as anticipated, and when he was released from prison, he immediately went to work for the brothers. From there, it wasn't hard to grow. By 1956, Charlie was 22. He owned six scrapyards in South London, worth a turnover of a quarter of a million pounds, or about $5 million in today's money. He was the man to go to for nearly anything if you didn't care about where it came from. 
But Charlie was a romantic about the way he ran his unlawful businesses. He considered himself a regular Robin Hood, robbing from the rich and providing the poor with cheaper goods. So much the better if Charlie Richardson got richer in the process. Of course, bribing policemen and fraud detectives was a necessity in the business. Charlie had accrued such a wide range of customers, he had no choice but to pay off the authorities to protect those who depended on him. In Charlie's eyes, he was being honorable. Anyone who caused Charlie any trouble, meanwhile, was dishonorable and treated as such immediately. He had amassed quite the team of men to help with that particular job, and the more they believed they were untouchable, the more violent they became. Always, of course, with Charlie's blessing, or according to his verdict when it came to the torture court. Charlie's violent reputation preceded him everywhere he went. Fear put London in the palm of his hand. Including the Astor Club in Mayfair, where gang firms often gathered to do business. Each firm came from a different angle. There were those who handled nightclubs, those who handled protection money. Some were involved specifically in bank robberies and others specialized in post office robbery. Charlie felt welcome here in the home of the gentleman gangsters. He made deals with other dangerous men, networking with whoever he needed for specific ventures and collecting allies. He admired that they were all working together against authority. But not everybody admired Charlie in the same way. The Cray twins, Ronnie and Reggie, were a rival gang from East London who often frequented the Astor Club. They were jealous of Charlie's rise to power and disliked that he had become top gangster. They lacked the savviness that came so easily to Charlie, and their fortune was nowhere near what Charlie had grossed. During one meeting at the Astor Club, one of Charlie's men, George Cornell, spotted the craze. In passing, he called Ronnie Cray a fat poof, London slang for a homosexual. Ronnie dove at George, and soon a fight had broken out between the Crays and the Richardson gang. Charlie and Reggie pulled the men apart. Naturally, the Crays wanted to exact revenge, but another incident at the Astor Club would quickly remind them that they were no match for Charlie and his gang. Eric Mason, a villain and friend of the Cray brothers, took it upon himself to challenge the Richardson's empire. He spoke ill of Charlie and threatened that he'd enlist the help of the Crays to defeat him. Frankie Fraser, who had overheard this threat, kidnapped Mason on his way out of the club and took him to the Richardson's workplace. There, a terrified Mason tried to block his head as Fraser found an axe and threw it straight at him. The axe tore through Mason's fingers and lodged itself deep in Mason's skull. Fraser watched as Mason stumbled out of the workplace, barely aware of where he was. Then, he picked the poor sod up and dropped him off in front of a hospital, bleeding profusely and barely alive. Fraser was satisfied with his work. He knew the Cray twins would heed the warning. But Charlie himself didn't fear the Crays. Money was power, 
and the craze made little to nothing compared to him. Charlie didn't need the newspapers to name him London's top gangster. He just wanted more money. He began to set up phony companies to sell stolen goods like alcohol, clothes, scales, and radios. The men in his firm would steal anything they could get their hands on, anything that Charlie could sell. After they were sold, Charlie's makeshift company would mysteriously collapse. The fraud squad and cops would be paid off, and Charlie would create a new company, eager to begin the cycle again. Charlie was at his peak. He felt like he belonged. He was respected, feared, powerful. But an accusation of murder would soon tear Charlie's empire down. He had trusted the wrong crowd. And this time, there would be no way out. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, we'll take a deeper look at the height of Charlie's power and the fatal 1965 shooting that launched the torture trial. For more information on Charlie Richardson, amongst the many sources we used, we found Charlie's autobiography, My Manor, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Effie Antigone with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. 